Dear Grit, Ismisha Ryan Unshaw. This story was suggested to us by Dermid Linehan from the beautiful West Cork town of Bantry. Gurvmahakut Dermid. Anish Tarinstak Unscale. What is the most you are willing to risk for a cause you truly believe in? Would you risk your freedom for the freedom of others? Would you risk your life in the hope that others may one day get to enjoy theirs? Would you risk your home so that one day others could return to theirs? It's the life of a County Louth man which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In Drogheda, County Louth, in 1836, a child was born. His name was John Breslin. John was the third child of six which his parents welcomed into the world. In John's early years on earth, he developed a great love of learning. He attended a local national school and received an education as good as any which was available to him at the time. To be taught was not enough for John, however. He was a very keen student who thoroughly enjoyed absorbing the information of the classroom. He worked very hard in school and was noted as being a very studious reader and a very bright boy. At the age of nine years old, John's life was interrupted, as many others were, with the curse of being Irish under the rule of a foreign crown. It was in his ninth year that young John watched starvation sweep across the land which he called home. Living on the east of the island, John and his family were in a slightly fortuitous position compared to those in the south and the west. As food was taken from the island to feed the men and women of plenty across the empire, the single crop rotted and with it so did our people. John would have seen droves of the starving mindlessly marching towards the cities and coastlines for any form of sanctuary. Blinded by hunger and lost to hatred, these people formed zombie-like queues going nowhere in particular. Young John listened to the stories the adults would tell. The stories of the food leaving the island. The stories of Galway pirates attacking the Empire's fleet to feed their own. He heard the rumours of rebellions and attacks on the pawns who believed themselves to have authority over the lives of others. During this time, John and his family continued to try their best in life. When he entered adulthood, John, like many of his peers, did not forget what he saw during the horror. 
the memories of what had happened still kept the people awake at night. The horrors they saw, the bodies they walked past, and the things they had to do to survive remained undiscussed. Not undiscussed as a method of forgetting, but as a method of coping. The memory of what had happened had formed scars around the Celtic soul and John's generation carried these scars. In adulthood, John was hired as a hospital steward at Richmond Prison in Dublin. Whilst he supported the Irish Republican Brotherhood, he did not make the leap of becoming a member. To be a member may have easily changed his position from being a prison employee to an inmate just by association. Inmates came and went, some went to freedom, others went to the soil. John was very fond of the members of the Brotherhood who spent time within the prison walls. They told John their stories and their plans to eventually achieve Irish freedom. In return, John helped them in any way he could whilst they were inmates, as long as the help did not cost him his employment. This was until prisoner James Stevens was housed in the prison. James was an Irish Republican, a Fenian leader and a founder of the Brotherhood. As a result of his actions in the attempted liberation of Ireland, James had spent large portions of his life in exile. He spent time in Paris and New York and was raising Irish America to rebel against the Crown in the hope of perhaps returning home as a free man to push out the oppressor. On a return to Dublin in an effort of growing his cause, James was caught and placed in the prison. When John met him whilst performing his duties, it was like meeting a celebrity. John knew instantly that he must be the man to help James escape so he could return to his work with the Brotherhood. As James did not know the prison's layout, John formed the plan himself. It was a drastic move for a man who up until this point had just tried to do his job, get paid and go home. On a cold and wet November's evening, as the sun sank behind the hills of Dublin, James was handed a key on his return from a hospital check to his cell. John had placed a duplicate key for James's cell in his hand. Later that evening, as the prison dipped into silence, James opened the door to his cell. As he stepped out to see if the coast was clear, he heard his name being whispered across the corridor. On the other side, John was crouched in the dark. Follow me, he whispered. John took James to the prison walls and helped him to scale them. 
James ran off into the Dublin night to continue the fight for Irish freedom. John returned to his duties in the hospital of the prison without suspicion. The following year, John decided it was time for him to see the world. Having had a taste of adventure, it was hard to suppress his desire to experience more. John set off to America to experience more of life. He settled in Boston and became a member of the United Irish Brotherhood, a Fenian group made up of Irish people born in Ireland and born in Boston. John made quite the impression in the group. He was more liberated to share his views on Irish freedom and what was necessary to achieve it. Living away from British rule, there were little consequences for having his own opinions or beliefs in America. It was during this time that John was said to have come across as a very dignified and reserved man, unassuming and modest. The Irish Republican John Devoy was particularly impressed with John as a man of substance. Devoy himself was a very popular member of the Irish rebel movement. He was one of the few people to have been involved in the 1867 Fenian Rising, the 1916 Easter Rising and the Irish War of Independence. He was a man hardened by struggle, strengthened with the idea of revolution and a great believer in the endless possibilities of the Irish people. Devoy had heard the stories of how cool, calm and collected John was as he helped James Stevens escape the Dublin prison. He was equally as impressed that John remained working in the prison for 12 months after the event going unsuspected. Devoy approached John and requested that he undertake a very special mission. John was asked to free Fenian prisoners from Fremantle, Western Australia. Scalefadagher On the west coast of the continental island we call Australia, in an area we now call Fremantle, a large prison stood. It stood as a sign of the oppressed in the British penal colony as many of those within it had been taken from their homes on the other side of the world and banished to this strange and distant land to live out their remaining days, never to return home again. Within the walls of the prison, six Irish Fenians were held. James Wilson, Thomas Darragh, Martin Hogan, Michael Harrington, Thomas Hassett, and Robert Cranston. 
Each of these men's stories we will return to at a later date for fascinating lives each did live. These six men were forced to work for the Empire in exile as a means of punishment for their beliefs in Irish freedom. In their time in the prison, they watched other Fenians and those sent to Van Diemen's land for small crimes be released from the prison having received pardons for various reasons. Some were released back into the world, others were allowed to leave the prison walls but were to never leave Australia. James Wilson, after nine years in the prison, was becoming more and more frustrated with the ease at which some were gaining their freedom, but he understood he and the five others would not receive a pardon so easily. You see, Wilson and his five comrades were special prisoners. Each of them were former members of the British Army who had joined the Irish rebel movement. Wilson himself joined the army at the age of 17 in order to avoid being arrested for allegedly assaulting a police officer in his home of Newry, County Down. He served for a time in India but lost faith in what his role was when he began to understand that he was doing to those people what the Empire had done to his. When he returned on leave to Dublin, he abandoned the army and joined the Brotherhood. He was later discovered hiding in a safe house and was arrested. Found guilty of desertion from the army, Wilson was sentenced to death. As he awaited his turn to join the Martyrs of Era, Wilson's sentence was changed and he was instead banished to penal servitude in Australia. He was to spend the remainder of his life helping the Empire to infect the world with its so-called gloriousness. the empire he had tried to banish from his home. Wilson was transferred to Australia with 61 other Fenians in a trip which must have felt like a journey to hell. Tied up in the belly of the boat for months and fed when it was deemed suitable rather than necessary. They then arrived to a land which their skin could not cope with. It blistered and burst on a daily basis if shade could not be found. The creatures of the land tried to kill them. The bugs which looked like the bugs from home had the power to cripple a man. The creatures which crawled on their bellies carried the ability to cause death at their own will, a vast difference to the creatures of Ireland. After nine years in prison, Wilson managed to sneak out a letter which was titled, A Voice from the Tomb. In it he explained his daily life in prison, 
the hardships he and the others were living through. He also explained how, while others were receiving various levels of pardons, he and the other five Fenians would not receive pardons, as before they played a role in the Irish Revolution they were members of the Empire's army. The letter was addressed to Devoy in America. When Devoy read the letter, he was deeply moved by the words of Wilson and instantly began to form a plan. He was not going to let six of his own rot in hell. Devoy selected John as the man to free the prisoners. On September 13, 1875, John set sail from San Francisco to Australia. John arrived in Australia in November of that year. He was joined on his adventure by Thomas Desmond. Here John changed his identity, going instead by the name James Collins. He altered his accent and people believed him to be an American mining millionaire who had made his fortune in the New World. It took John just a week to make contact with the six in the prison. John had approached the prison superintendent when he arrived in Australia and had told him of his own plans to build a prison in order to turn a profit back in America. They discussed how it can be a very profitable business if run correctly and what a nuisance it was when someone got released as you lost their payments from the state which had locked them away. The prison superintendent quickly agreed to giving John a tour of the prison so he could see how it worked, how they cut corners to save money and how they made extra money through the work of the prisoners. John's heart was broken by what he saw on the tour. He saw his brothers in arms suffering for their efforts at freedom. John witnessed for himself his brothers living in such difficult conditions doing backbreaking work and living in fear of the murderers and rapists who shared their cells with them. While on his tour, John was taken to see how the prison was designed to keep people in. They even showed him the weak spots where people had escaped before. After seeing the inside of the prison and its layout, John felt it was too risky to enter the prison to release the six and it was too risky to try and get them to scale the walls. Instead, he and Thomas began to monitor their movements as they went to work for the Empire. He would first watch from a distance to see what sort of security surrounded them. He noted at what points of the day they were chained up and at what points they were free of chains. 
John decided on his plan and set off to find the other members of the Voice crew to get the prisoners. As John did his bit in Australia, others were coming to his aid. They travelled on the merchant ship called the Catalpa. The ship was owned by the Irish movement. It had three large masts and had spent its life as both a whaling ship and a merchant ship. Before it set off, the ship's captain had restricted the ship's layout for the journey ahead. They were going out to deep and unforgiving oceans. The expected voyage through the North Pacific Ocean into the South and around Australia was expected to take between 18 months and two years. During that time they would see no land, they would see no distance and they would see no hope as they sailed through the vast and open ocean. The crew consisted of 23. The captain, George Anthony Smith, first mate Samuel Smith, and at sea repairman Dennis Duggan were the leading crew. With them a team made up of Pacific Islanders, Asians and Africans. John went to meet the Catalpa when it arrived at Dunbury, the nearest port to Fremantle, in the march after John arrived. John, Thomas and the captain agreed that the escape should take place on April 15th, the Saturday of Easter weekend. As John went to get a message to the prisoners of how they were to escape, his journey was intercepted by the ship's captain who had to stop him. A storm was blowing in and he could not be certain that they would be able to safely set sail once the prisoners were on board. This caused a major issue for John as he had arranged for rented horses to be at a point on the Fenians' journey in order to get them to the boat faster. He had to return the horses and come up with some other way of speeding up the escape. Then John realised that the annual regatta of the Perth Yacht and Boat Club was on the Easter Monday and that the best horses in Fremantle owned by the local officials would not be noticed if they were to go missing while everyone was away. John passed word to the prisoners through a man he trusted working there that the escape was now to be held on the Monday. That morning the Catalpa moved out from the port towards the line of international waters and a small whaling boat stayed behind in the port. John and Desmond, meanwhile, made their way to where the horses were kept and took six of them and two coaches. They made their way towards the prison. At 8am that morning, as the chains were taken off the men to begin their day's work, they saw the prison guards looking the other way. 
the six Fenians bolted. They ran like the wind. They did not care that their bodies were hurting from the daily gruelling work they had been forced to do for the previous nine years. They did not care that they did not have the proper footwear on for the race at hand. They did not care if they were shot dead. This was their chance at freedom. They ran until their legs had only battery acid to burn. It was at this point in their long sprint to freedom that they saw John and Desmond with the horses. Quickly, jump in, cried John as he swung the door of his coach open. The six Fenians bundled into the two coaches and John and Desmond charged for the port. The race to the port took over two hours and twenty minutes. When they got there they abandoned the horses who were near death from exhaustion and jumped into the whaling boat. Each of the men grabbed an oar and they rowed like the devil to try and reach the main ship which was anchored in international waters waiting for them. It took them almost two hours to clear the harbour completely. They rowed aimlessly for a time out at sea. None of them were experienced at sea navigation and much of their experience of the ocean was as a passenger in the belly of a ship. After five hours in the water and with darkness quickly approaching, one of the crew spotted the main ship and they made their way towards it. As they got on, the men took in deep breaths, not from exhaustion but to enjoy the free air. They set sail for America and for freedom. Not long after they settled on the ship, a British steamer was spotted in the distance. It was the Georgetta and it was quickly gaining on them. It fired a shot across their path and ordered the Catulpa to stop instantly. John shouted at the captain to not stop and to keep moving. He then began to rustle through the ship looking for something. He did not respond when asked what he was doing. As he looked, the steamer began to gain on them. As the two boats raced out into the ocean, the steamer shot again. This time with venom, they were no longer warning shots, these were aimed to kill. John then found what he was looking for out in the middle of the ocean. He hoisted an American flag into the air, taking the gamble that the British ship did not want to hit an American ship in international waters. The shooting stopped but the race continued. 
as they got further and further out into the ocean, a storm began to brew and the waves began to display the power of water to the two boats. The steamer, not built for the power of the Pacific Ocean, turned around and went back to Australia. John and the Fenians headed for America. In August 1876, the Catalpa arrived safely in New York. It had been a tough time at sea, with food and morale running low, but they had made it. John returned as a hero. He remained involved with the Irish movement when he arrived back in America. He supported the New Departure Alliance of Charles Stuart Parnell and the Land League. In December of 1876, John met a County Clare man called John Holland at a celebration of the prison break in Australia. John Holland told John of his idea to build a submarine to go under the water to attack the British fleets. John truly believed in this crazy idea and helped Holland to raise the funds for the world's first submarine. The first prototype of the submarine was called the Fenian Ram. John later went on to work for Devoy as a manager and editor of the Irish Republican publication called The Irish Nation. John passed away in November 1888. Today in Rockingham, Western Australia, a statue stands in commemoration of the Fenians' escape. It is a large statue of six wild geese, symbolising the Fenians and the wild geese soldiers of Ireland. As for those who escaped, today you can see the faces of Michael Harrington and James Wilson on the bottles of wine from the wine brand called 19 Crimes. The music for this story was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish and leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanam Dunn, Gurv Mahakut, Slananish.